Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me. And I do want to give special thanks to those of you who are subscribers on Patreon. That's what keeps the podcast going. Really appreciate that help to cover my costs and to help out in that way. It means a lot. I know that not all of you can do it, and that's fine. And I am still happy you're listening. But I do appreciate those of you who are helping in that level, and it does keep these podcasts coming. So thanks again. If you're interested, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory, and you can choose a support level. Okay, we're going to talk about 2 Corinthians 1 through 7 today. And toward the end of the podcast, I'm going to talk also about some kind of current events there with a sort of a renewal of the BYU Honor Code that I think is worth sharing. One of my daughters, Caitlin, sent that to me. I'm really grateful that I've got kids who kind of keep me in the loop because I get out of the loop very easily. So here we go. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. I don't know if you've ever done this, but there are so many names for our Savior Jesus Christ, and they're beautiful names, and each of them has something to offer us, I think, in additional understanding or comprehension of his greatness and glory. I may have mentioned this before, sometimes when I pray, I know we've all heard the idea that we should try to say some prayers that are all gratitude. And I think that's a wonderful idea, and I love it. I hope all of us are trying to do that from time to time. This is something else that I have done on occasion that I really, really love, and that is to pray, and my entire prayer is praise for God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the praise being different from the gratitude in that I am using the names of Christ that I know and the names for the Father that I know so that I can take a moment and really immerse myself in their goodness and glory and the wonder and awe that I have at how much they love us, how elevated above us they are and how much they love us and what they do for us. As part of our Christmas celebrations, again, I may have mentioned this before, There was so much Santa Rudolph, Frosty kind of stuff that I figured the kids are going to get some of that in the schools and public. But at home, I decided instead of focusing on those things, we were going to try to orient more of our decorations and our observances and all those things around Jesus Christ, specifically the entire month. And this was an idea I had, but I never figured out exactly how to do it. I think I tried one or two things. I was going to have like a small artificial Christmas tree. I think I might have tried it once. I don't even really remember, but I know it was on my mind. Little ornaments that had different names for Jesus Christ that could serve as another kind of advent calendar. So at least 24 or 25 of those names we could use every, every holiday. And we certainly talked about the names of Christ. So even though I don't think I ever figured out something really cool or workable for an advent calendar using his names. We did other things and uh, really enjoyed that focus. But 
if you want to spend some fun time or really enhance your prayer experience when you are maybe wanting to just experiment on praise, you can go to the Bible Dictionary. And there's a listing under Christ, Names of. And it starts with the names, titles, and concepts of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. And it gives all these names with the reference. Seed of the woman, Shiloh, the prophet, Emmanuel, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, stem of Jesse, mighty one of Jacob, servant of the Lord or Jehovah, It goes on and on, as you might imagine. And then it goes and says, here are the names and concepts of Christ in the Gospels and the Acts of the New Testament. And it has beautiful names there. And then it goes on and talks about the names and titles of Christ that are in the book of Revelation. So it's beautiful. There's wonderful stuff here in some of it. I mean, if we've read through the scriptures, we have read these things, but sometimes we don't think of them as names of Christ. For instance, there's one here from the book of Revelation, the faithful witness. That's not one that comes easily to my mind when I think about some of the names of Christ or the first begotten of the dead, or he that liveth and was dead, or the prince of the kings of the earth. Some of them are more familiar, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Here's one that's not one I would have come up with on my own, which is and which was and which is to come. At any rate, I invite you to look up the Bible Dictionary under Christ, Names of, and have an enjoyable time doing that. Now, is this an exhaustive list of all the names of Christ? No, it's not. And that makes it even more fun because as we read scriptures, we can watch for other ways that Christ through the voice of his prophets, is addressed, and they are often offering praise. So it's really a beautiful thing to watch for. I remember one that, and I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this, but it's been a long time. One time we were visiting our daughter Bethany and son-in-law Nate in Southern California. They lived there for a while, and I think we were blessing a baby, one of their babies. And in that meeting, they decided to have a time, it may not have been a fast day. I think it might have been another day on a Sunday that they were doing that. Because for sacrament meeting, they invited the congregation to come up and present one of the hymns from the hymn book and explain something that was meaningful to them from that hymn. And then the congregation would sing the first verse or whichever verse the person indicated. And we would all sing it together. I like those meetings. I have mentioned this before. I think we should do those meetings at least twice a year. I think it's a wonderful thing for us to become more familiar with these hymns. I think it can help encourage our children to listen to the words. And anyway, there are a lot of things we can do to make that meaningful. Nevertheless, our daughter went up and she said that she had found another name for Jesus Christ. And it was one that had spoken to her beautifully from a hymn. And the hymn is Abide With Me. Now, I had sung that hymn all my life, but I never thought of this phrase as one of the names of Christ, and that's what Bethany brought to the attention of the congregation. It was beautiful. It's the last line of the first verse. You know the words. I'm going to go through with the first verse. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. 
When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O abide with me. The writer is using that phrase, help of the helpless, as a name of Christ. That's so beautiful, and I had not picked up on that, so we learn a lot from our wonderful children, don't we? Help of the helpless, there's one. And here again is another one that we don't hear, and I don't think it's in the list in the Bible dictionary, but in verse 3, what I just read includes the words, the Father of mercies. Do we think about our Heavenly Father and Christ as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort? Those are two names that are both beautiful to me, the Father of mercies. So that kind of leapt off the page when I was rereading these chapters for this week, and I love that we have so many ways to praise our Heavenly Father and to praise our Savior Jesus Christ. I hope you'll try that. I hope you'll do it for yourself, with a friend, with a spouse, with your children. It really can add dimension to our worship and to our praise, as well as to just our understanding of what Jesus Christ is and does and what God the Father does for us, his children. Going on, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. He goes on and talks about that. I hope you enjoyed those verses at the beginning of chapter 1. Much of what Paul is writing about here is about how to deal with affliction and difficulty, the tribulations that come in life. The saints in Corinth were no different from us in terms of they're living on an imperfect planet at a telestial level where there are all kinds of things that challenge us and hurt us and cause us loss and pain and failure. And he's giving them so much beautiful comfort in these things. Good to remember that if you want to look for some of the Lord's comfort, look at these first chapters of 2 Corinthians, of course, it's all throughout Scripture because this is a repeated theme, and we will talk more about this later. In chapter 2, let me read verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. (laughs) That's a good reminder. I wonder if I come in heaviness sometimes. I do get excited and passionate about the motivation and warnings of the Scriptures, and I think that maybe that does come across heavy sometimes, but that's not my intention. I'm going to stand with Paul here and say that it's not my intent to come with heaviness. And then in the next verse, there's kind of a fun rhetorical question here in verse 2, right? For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. In other words, he's saying this isn't a very well-thought-out approach to come to somebody that you love with heaviness all the time and then expect them to be able to cheer you up. Because I just made you sad, and I need your comfort. So he wants to try to make the message more positive. And I think that's a great idea. I try to do that myself. I hope it comes through. But I realize that sometimes when we are talking about last day's stuff or the troubles in the earth right now, that that can seem pretty heavy. Don't don't mean to weigh you down. Although maybe I'm not doing such a bad job all the time because I had a friend come by the other day and she brought us 
dinner because she had heard about the basement flood and the upstairs being torn up for a remodel. So it was really sweet. And she didn't really announce that she was coming for something else. We needed to work on something together. And then she had a bag and she had dinner for us, which we enjoyed that night because it was a heck of a day in trying to make decisions and get things moving on these projects. And when I took her to see the damage in the basement, where now all the floorings are out and the bottom part of the drywall throughout the 4,000 square feet, it looks pretty sad. And she turned to me and she said, wow, you didn't make it sound this bad on your podcast. She said, I had no idea it was this bad. And I thought, good, good. I'm glad I didn't come with heaviness because, again, it's only stuff and it's just money. And while we don't have, you know, money to burn and most of us don't, the fact is it's only stuff and it's just money and the Lord has blessed us and we pay our tithing and we trust. We trust that things will work out. Not always in the way that we would envision or maybe would hope for, but always in a way that ultimately consecrates our affliction for our gain. And as I so often say, we don't want to waste our suffering. That would be the greatest tragedy of all, is that in this world of opposition and tribulation and troubles that are designed to help us become like Jesus Christ if we choose, If we failed to go to the Lord with our broken hearts and let him consecrate our affliction for our gain, that would be the tragedy. We would be wasting our opportunities to become what we have the potential to become, what God invites us to become through his son. So I like the rhetorical there, though. We've got to keep it positive as much as possible. And I'm kind of one of those hellfire damnation types. Sometimes I realize that. So I apologize if it comes off heavy. That is not my intention. I love the gospel. I do believe it's good news. And I know that we worship a God and a Savior who are so full of love that they only write stories with happy endings. This story written by God the Father. In chapter 3, let's look at verse 3 for a moment. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Now, isn't that a great phrase? This is like a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. (laughs) That's a nice image, I think. (laughs) A graphic kind of thought there about, like, these need to be engraved upon our hearts. These commandments, these missives, these messages, these principles, the doctrines of the kingdom that can save us. They are designed to both save and exalt, should we choose. May they be written on the fleshy tables of our heart. Really, Paul does have a great way with words, doesn't he? I'm going to skip all kinds of good stuff that I hope you enjoyed. Chapter 4, we're going to go to several verses here, starting with verse 8. And these next few verses are real favorites of mine. I was telling Chris that as many times as I've looked these up, I've never really remembered whether they were in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. <laughs> so anyway, I knew it was to the saints in Corinth, but this time I'm going to try to remember that it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 8, which says this, 
We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Those are verses 8 and 9. I love them. They are real favorites of mine. I think, what a great description. Again, Paul's wonderful language, inspired language, that comes to these saints that he loves, and he tells them, we are going to go through tough things. But we don't have to let it define our lives. We don't have to let it turn us away from God or make us bitter or angry or resentful or nasty people who have taken it long enough and decide to dish it out. That's one of the big problems that I see in counseling is that sometimes people who have been in difficult relationships for a long time just start to be nasty in return. And then, as I used to tell my children, well, then everybody's going to hell. God can't do very much with either one of us if we just strike back, if we just retaliate for the injuries that we suffer, even if we didn't start it. Remember, even if we didn't start it, if somebody hurts us and we hurt them back, ultimately there's not that much difference between us. Now, I hope you know that I am not in favor of victimization, particularly chronic victimization. Adults can do something about that. Children can't. Again, really, our responsibility as adults to protect the children and provide for the safety of children within our range of influence, and certainly our own children, and others as well. Brethren, you, as a holder of the priesthood of God, have a responsibility to keep people safe, and you have a body that is built in a certain way with strength that is put together in a certain way and a facility to do things that women and children cannot do. And that great gift of power and strength comes with the responsibility to protect and defend. Of course, women do a lot to protect and defend their children too because men go off and slay the dragon every day. So women are the ones at home with their children if that works out for them. And I realize that individual adaptation is required as the proclamation on family says. So there are some women who work. I work now at this stage of my life and have for quite a while. Some people are single moms or single parents, and of course they can't be with their children all the time. That's okay if you're not out there just because you want more stuff or because you don't like being at home with your kids, but because you are helping the family. But back to the subject, we are meant to protect our children, and we are all parents and all individuals, all adults should be aware of the children around us. We don't have to obsess about it, but we should be aware. And if we see a child that's in distress, we need to get help or make sure that somebody knows about it who can do something to help. Now back another step to this wonderful verse, both of these verses that talk about how trouble does not have to lead us to distress. There's a difference, right? There's a difference. Of course, everybody is going to go through hard times, but we don't have to land in it. It's getting stuck in the misery that is the problem. It's recognizing that God has a plan to use that misery, that heartbreak, that failure, to consecrate things for our gain, to help us become. So that's why. It's because he knows that, that he can say this. And then I'm going to read verse 10. Always bearing about in the body... The dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now, that's a little poetry there, too. I think what he's saying is that we carry with us 
Deep in us, in the fleshy tables of our heart, we carry the knowledge of the price that Christ paid for us. As Paul has said earlier in our studies, ye were bought with a price. There was a terrible price that was paid for each one of us. And if we need to bear that in mind, we need to understand that that obligates us if we are wise enough to carry that thought with us, to carry the love that we can have for Jesus Christ and because of his love for us, we can grow into that love at greater and greater levels throughout our lives. I've always, again, loved these words, we love him because he first loved us. This great love is what we're carrying around with us, bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And the life is that he resurrected and overcame not only the grave, but he also overcame sin if we repent. Does that make sense? We want to recognize that there's a price that was paid for us, and that if we choose to honor that obligation, we will focus on and live in the life that he is giving us, that he can in every way save us from death, from physical death, from spiritual death. Some other beautiful verses in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17, for our light affliction Now, that's a relative term in this case, because Paul suffered great afflictions. But he's comparing it to the affliction of Christ. And when I think of that, when I think of what Christ paid for me, I recognize that I've got this tiny, tiny, tiny thimble of the bitter cup. Christ drank the whole cup. Or sometimes it seems more like my little thimble and his ocean of suffering. And it helps me bear it more patiently. It helps me reframe it so that I don't get stuck in it. I don't land in the pain. I move through the pain to the promises that God has made, which come in his time, so different from our time, much of the time, right? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Again, God can give us lemonade out of the lemons. Or we can just get stuck in the lemons. But if we put it in this larger frame of the doctrine of Christ, of his dying for us and his resurrection, and we acknowledge that we are bought with a price and we do what he asks, we can qualify. None of us earns it, but we can qualify for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Beautiful language there. I love it. Chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. I think we need reminders of that often. We hear these words, we read these words, we say these words that we need to believe and we want to increase our faith, and yet when things go wrong, we want the sight. (laughs) We want to walk right up to the veil and squint hard and see past what is darkness to us, what God has covered for this season to allow us to demonstrate our desires. And it's such a good reminder that that's not how we walk in this life. It's not going to work to walk only by what we can see. It's to walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 16, I just want to point out, there is a correction in the JST footnote. Always important to check those footnotes. I'm not going to take time to read it right now, but I hope you notice that. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And this is a follow-up to the JST part, and it makes much better sense when you look at what Joseph Smith corrected. Chapter 6, verse 3. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. <laughs> that makes me chuckle, too. I mean, this is just good common sense counsel that Paul is giving to the saints. And I don't mean to make light of it because it's important, but I think it's like, look, pay attention. We are all witnesses of Jesus Christ. If we have joined the church, we take upon ourselves his name. And then how do we behave? Do we behave in such a way that people can see the light of Christ through us because we try to be consistent? None of us is 100% consistent. Of course, we're human. Of course, we have weaknesses. But they will see if we are working on them or not. If we keep the Spirit with us and we are trying and we are diligent, not finished, not complete, not perfect, but diligent in our efforts, then we bring honor to his name. And if we don't, it brings dishonor to the ministry. The ministry can be blamed for that, particularly missionaries. Paul being a missionary, this has great application to our missionaries. If our missionaries go out and misbehave and do things that are against the rules or against the laws or against common sense, it doesn't look so good for the church. And some people don't want to hear because they see the behavior of somebody who is supposed to be a witness or a testator or a missionary for the Savior. So it's important. And I used to say that to my children, too. I would say, look, you bear the name of of our family. And there was a real likeness in my kids' looks for some reason. I mean, I think they all have their own distinct look, which they do, but I guess there's a real family resemblance because sometimes one of the younger kids could go into the school to get a sibling who was waiting for a ride, and they would encounter you know, both students and teachers who would look at the younger child that they'd never seen before and say, you must be an Anderson. <laughs> And I thought that was great because somehow there was a look that they noticed and they had enough semblance of their sibling that people put them together. And I used that to remind the kids that, like, look, what you do is not just your own. It reflects on all of us because you're a member of our family. Don't take this too far, brothers and sisters. That is not the reason to be good. The reason to be good is that we want to be diligent in our covenants and receive all the beautiful things that God has invited us to receive. But it's another reason. <laughs> it's another reason. And sometimes our kids do screw up, or they mess up, or they turn away from the gospel, and they do things that we were not teaching them to do when they grew up. They go against some of the teachings that we gave them or that they learned in church. And that's always sad, but it's not over till it's over. There are so many promises made to parents who continue in the covenant path for themselves. But it's pretty good practical, common sense advice to say like, hey, what you do reflects on those that you're coming from. Whether it's as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ, or whether it's a member of a family, or just a member of the church, people recognize what the Mormon Church does. 
what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does and is supposed to be. And although they may not understand everything about us, they often expect us to behave better than the rank and file of humanity. And that's a tremendous compliment to us. It's good if we don't let that down. Let's go forward to verses 4 through 7. And it's silly what I thought of maybe, but I kind of liked it. I'm going to read these. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. You know what I thought about? <laughs> Sorry, I'm in a weird mood today, I guess. I thought of the Navy SEALs and all of those elite military forces. As you know, every branch of the service has its own elite troops. And these are people who are amazing and have gone through amazing things to develop capacity to do things that most of us cannot do. And they go places we cannot go, and they accomplish things we cannot accomplish. And I thought, how wonderful if we would see ourselves as members of the church as kind of an elite force that God has given this charge to, to build Zion, and to not let anything stay us from that goal, to become a Zion people, to choose the celestial glory in everything that we do. And when we make mistakes, we get right back on the wagon and we choose it again, and we continue on our Zion path. And I'll think of it again with that in mind. In all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Anyway, I think that's beautiful. Verses 14 and 16, also very common sense, sound advice. Be ye not equally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Verse 15, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with the infidel? Verse 16, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, often quoted, beautiful verse, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. We cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot serve idols and worldly riches and God. We have to choose. And there are many ways we can be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We can participate in all kinds of behaviors because the group does it, or the society does it, or everybody does it, or a lot of people do it. And that is being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Our 
children need to know this, that the friends they choose could put them in a situation where they are unequally yoked with unbelievers. We had a young man who came home from a mission not too long ago in our ward and did his mission report. Wonderful speech. He'd grown quite tall and he gave a great message. I didn't know him well before he left on his mission, but he mentioned in his homecoming talk that he had in high school had a good friend and was sometimes in the home of that friend and that the mother of his high school friend that he was referring to once when she realized that he was a member of the church was surprised that he was a member of the church. And he's telling this story on himself, bless his heart, which is really beautifully humble that he was saying like, yeah, you couldn't really tell I was a member of the church before. So perhaps he was unequally yoked with unbelievers. And maybe people who did say they believed and maybe they even went to church, but didn't act like they believed. And we've been kind of talking about some of that overlapping idea, right? So come out from among them and be ye separate. Now, obviously, there's a reference here, too, to marriage, that God invites us to find a member of the church to marry. Occasionally, we hear of people who were directed to marry outside the covenant for a purpose, but that is not the default. That is an exception for exceptional circumstances that must be dictated by the Lord. And I really mean that. I mean, it's almost like you got to have an angel come. It has to be such a strong spiritual knowledge, not our guts, not just our heart, not the chemistry, not the attraction, but truly understanding. And this would, I think, only apply in places where there are not sufficient members and there is no access to marriage without looking outside. Now, that's not very many places in the world these days because people can travel for the most part. When we were in Chicago, my husband worked with a stake president in Rochester, Minnesota, when he would travel up there to see people. And he came home one time and said that President Rose, it was President Daryl Rose, really wonderful man. In fact, we, he, we all went together on a family vacation once to see some of these places and to visit the Mayo Clinic, where President Rose worked as a doctor. Great guy. We had a nice visit with him. And he apparently would tell, back then, remember, this would have been like the early 1980s in Minnesota, and he was telling some of the older single sisters from his wards and stakes that if you can't find a good man in the church, maybe you find a good man and pray your guts out that the Lord will help you find somebody and you do your due diligence to know that they will support you in active church involvement, not just attendance, but involvement, supporting calling, supporting fasting, supporting the payment of tithes, supporting all kinds of things. Now, remember, these were not young kids that can go to BYU or BYUI or BYUH or come to Ensign College or UVU now, which didn't exist back then, and have opportunities to mingle with other young people of the faith. And of course, we have EFYs and FSYs where people can meet others of the faith. And we have Education Week and Women's Conference at BYU. Anyway, there are lots of ways that people can meet. And now we've got online apps, except watch your step there, because I hear nightmare stories about those apps. Ooh, ouch. Anyway, there are some that have been successful finding somebody within the faith. So we have some options now that didn't maybe exist before. But I do think that that's not a terrible message, that we can 
in certain rare circumstances, be prayerful about what the Lord might have in mind for us if there's not an available option. This is dicey territory. I kind of feel uncomfortable about telling you you can marry a non-member because generally speaking, I think that there's not a lot of reason to do that or excuse given all the things that we have going for us. But there may be some circumstances, and I think President Rose was right, that in some circumstances, there may be something that is prayerfully undertaken, directed by the Spirit, practically getting an angel to confirm, and they are believers of a different kind. I mean, I wouldn't go around advocating that anybody marry an atheist or an agnostic or somebody who was against the church or had a chip on their shoulder about the church. And I must admit, I was quite concerned when I was in a place with a lot of church members, and one of the brothers there said, don't you think that the church leaders aren't making such a big deal about marrying within the covenant anymore? And I was kind of astonished, because I have not heard any such direction. I think that God doesn't want us to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And as I said, if we're young and we can get to a place where there are members or use appropriate facilities, we have institutes of religion all over with universities. So even in other universities, if you can't get west to some of these that I mentioned, you can find like-minded people at the institutes if you involve yourself. So I would say as a very, very last resort, any of the things that I discussed And in the meantime, let me add another layer, which is that many of us know of people who married in the temple, worthily in the temple to somebody else who professed worthiness and hopefully was worthy, and we were sealed in that invitation to persist on that path of covenant marriage and qualify for eternal marriage, and then our partner pulls away from the church, stops believing, chooses no longer to be involved. And I would not say that that means you must immediately divorce, even though Paul says don't be unequally yoked because you already have a marriage. You very likely have children. And divorce is not an answer. It's another set of problems. And the costs are high, particularly to children. Sometimes divorce can't be avoided. But when it can, we can find ways to become more Christ-like in our journey with a partner who has lost the faith. And only, only the Spirit can tell us how to navigate those waters completely. We want to eliminate contention. Nobody should compel or force. Those are very difficult circumstances, and you may need some help. And don't hesitate to find help. I must say, I did not expect to go off on that particular topic, so take it with the Spirit. Take it with the Spirit. I am not trying to disagree with Paul here. It is wonderful to be equally yoked. I am saying there are some circumstances that are beyond our control and not of our choosing, where we may be unequally yoked, and God can still consecrate that trial for our gain. And most often that happens because one of the partners leaves the church, and the other one still believes. And bless all of you who still believe, brothers and sisters. Bless you for it. Do not give up on your children, even if they are highly influenced by that very alluring and seductive path of worldliness. 
I have spoken to so many heartbroken parents who have a partner who has left the church and who even deliberately and intentionally plants seeds of doubt in their children and talks them out of believing or encourages them to participate in activities that are completely contrary to the standards or principles of the church. That is tragic. Nevertheless, it is temporal. We are still in a temporal sphere, and God is not fixing the problems until Christ comes again. And when Christ comes again, these things will be put right, and our children will be given a complete opportunity to express the honest desires of their heart. Do not despair. Remember, we just read that, that we can be persecuted, but not in despair. Ooh, let's go back. Those are such beautiful words. I'm going to read them again. Here they are, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Christ and our Father in heaven love us in ways that we cannot even imagine. And they make amazing and serious promises to each of us. We need to remain on the path as troubled as it will be in these last days. And the promises will be fulfilled. Happy endings. Happy endings. It's the only thing God writes in his plan. And it has been written and it has been sealed with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ promises are going to be kept to each one of us that believe and remain in his covenant path. Quickly, I'm going to reference in chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, about godly sorrow. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing, Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Not all sorrow and remorse are the same. I think the most clear example that I've ever known of myself in Scripture is in Mormon chapter 2. And I may have referred to this, but it's been a long time, so I'm going to refer to it again. This is the tragic ending of the Book of Mormon, where the Nephites are becoming even more wicked than the Lamanites. And the Lamanites are not at all righteous, but the Nephites are even more corrupt. And as we know, if you have light and then you turn away from the light, then not only do you lose the light that you had, but you lose the light that you had at the beginning, even the light of Christ. So the state at the end is worse than it was in the beginning. And that is what happens to the Nephites. And then, of course, you know that very poignant story of Mormon who, as a very young boy, who must have been extremely large in stature and incredibly coordinated and talented and amazing, is asked to lead men who are full-grown into battle. And he does. And not only is he an amazing warrior, but he is also a prophet. And he has received the plates from the previous record holder. So he is writing and completing this record and editing it, of course, and that's why we often have the voice of the prophet Mormon within the Book of Mormon, giving commentary and explaining things and explaining why he included a certain story or a certain piece of history. 
And here he is now, and he remember that there's a point at which the Nephites are so unrighteous that Mormon will not lead them into battle anymore. And then his people are being even more destroyed and slaughtered, and he can't bear it. And even though he knows that they are not repenting, he fights for them again. In his own book, Mormon, chapter 2, verse 11, Thus there began to be a mourning and a lamentation in all the land because of these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. 12. And it came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning, M-O-U-R-N, their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord. Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. I remember that caught my attention when I was a young person reading this, probably in my undergrad years, and I thought, you know, wait, what happened just there? Because his people are suffering, and there's this huge cry of mourning and lamentation in all the land, especially upon the people of Nephi, and he says he began to rejoice. His heart began to rejoice within him. And I'm like, wait a minute, why is he happy that they're miserable? But then he goes on and explains, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord. Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. Mormon knows for himself, with a witness borne by the Spirit, that God is good. And if people repent, he will forgive them and help them to become what they have the potential to become. Now we must repent. He cannot save us in our sins, only from them. And these people will not leave their sins behind. Verse 13, but behold, this my joy was vain. For their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather, and here comes this amazing phrase, the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. Brothers and sisters, what a warning to us. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. There are different kinds of sorrow. There's sorrow because we got caught. There's sorrow because there are consequences to our choices. And there's sorrow because we know we have offended God and betrayed ourselves. We have deceived ourselves or we have rationalized behaviors that we had no business rationalizing. We have excused behavior in ourselves that we have no business excusing. We have ignored things that we should know better than to do. And we have not corrected errors or made things right with people that we have offended. And if that is the case, we are not sorrowing in the right way. It's not godly sorrow. Maybe you remember, if you're as old as I am, or I don't know if it's been available in other ways, but there was a seminary movie that was pretty new back in the day when I was teaching, or one of those years, and it's called Godly Sorrow Leads to Repentance. That's the name of the video. Godly Sorrow Leads to Repentance. It's from 1992. That's a long time ago. And it's available on YouTube. So if you want to look that up, it's kind of fun because it has Aaron Eckhart in there back when he was an active member of the church. And... <laughs> Now, sadly, I think he has left the church behind, although I believe I heard that he was a big BYU sports fan. Won't be quite enough, though, <laughs> so I hope he'll brush off his testimony and come back someday. He's in the movie, and it's an engaged couple that are planning to go to the temple, and when the girl goes for her recommend, she confesses to her bishop something that she had never repented for appropriately before. 
And the bishop says, I don't think it's time to sign this recommend. And she has to tell her fiancé, who is heartbroken. And she, I imagine, tells her parents and so on. I think we see that also. I didn't watch the video again, but I remember pretty well. We used to show it to the kids. And this is my favorite part. <laughs> she sits in the bishop's office because he's continuing to meet with her. And incidentally, the bishop is played by a man named Charles Metten, who was one of the drama professors at BYU and happened to be in our ward there in Indian Hills in Provo. So it was kind of funny to see our former Bishop Metten, you know, playing a different bishop, or I don't remember what name they gave him, but in this video, he was a very kind man. And he's not trying to be mean. And she sits there in his office on a subsequent meeting, and she has this sort of mulish look on her face. <laughs> She's obviously resentful because things blew up on her. Here they were planning a wedding that they now have to postpone because if they're going to go to the temple, they postpone the ceiling. She wasn't worthy to participate at that point. That's what they do. She goes through a process. And you know, it's quite lovely the way the video ends. I hope you will watch it if you haven't seen it before and show it to any children that you might have at home or share it wherever you'd like because I think they did a pretty good job. And this is the difference. She wasn't really sorry that she had distanced herself from God. She was sorry that she had to pay some unpleasant consequences for the choice that had not been appropriately reconciled. It's a good message. Let us learn from these wonderful prophets, Paul and Mormon, that we can be sorry, but it could be the sorrow of the damned if we are just complaining that God will no longer let us take joy in sin. And that's a fascinating phrase, because think about it. This whole world is about finding happiness most of the time. And I mean, there are some people with a higher goal than that. But so much of it is about the natural man and having our appetites fulfilled and gratified. And that's the whole point of advertising stuff is that here's happiness and here's happiness. And if you have this or if you have this much money or if you go here or there or whatever and do these things, you will be happy. They're talking only about pleasure. They're just talking about pleasure. But some people really mistake pleasure for happiness or even joy. And then when the gravy train stops or the party's over or whichever metaphor you want to use, they complain. Well, I was able to get away with it before. I have used this example before. I don't mean to be crude, but this was a pretty good example. And it happened around the time that I was still teaching seminary. So I used it with my students. It was Magic Johnson, who I'm glad to say is still alive. He was diagnosed with HIV quite early in our learning about AIDS and HIV and all of that. So it was kind of a big deal when this stellar athlete was diagnosed with HIV. And there were interviews that he did, and it was reported in the press that when they asked about the HIV virus that he had been infected with, he said, I should have used a condom. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. And I'm not saying he doesn't have his nice parts or that he doesn't have good in him. I don't know the man. And I'm not trying to condemn him, way above our pay grade to condemn. But I am pointing out that that's an example of the sorrowing of the damned. Because he isn't saying, I'm sorry I slept with so many women. He's saying, I should have protected myself from the unwelcome consequences of sin. And that is not the sorrow that saves. We do need to sorrow for our sins. 
and then find joy in the morning when we come to Christ who paid the price if we will change, if we'll repent. We have to do things differently. We have to learn a new way to live in this arena where we have struggled. We need to become strong where we have been weak. And what a wonderful journey that is. And Christ magnifies our righteous desires and our efforts. And we can be saved. And we can even be exalted if we desire that. We can choose glory. We can build Zion as a Zion people before our God to welcome our Savior back. Anyway, I think that's a really important point, and I hope you take some time thinking about that and examining ourselves. We can each examine ourselves and say, what kind of sorrow have I felt in my life? And was it all sorrowing unto repentance? Or are there some areas where I need to recognize that maybe I didn't have godly sorrow? Such an important message. A couple of takeaways here. Of course, we have the whole classic question of life, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I've talked about this many times, but it's worth talking about a little bit again. Because we hear people on every side. You know, it happens in interviews all the time when you're, you know, I don't know, even Joe Rogan, I remember, had some conversation with Dr. Stephen Meyer, who is a mathematician, or I forget exactly his field of study, but he is into the hard sciences in his professional life, but has really used his faith, and he has written some things that are very faith-filled about science, including a book called Darwin's Doubt. And I, anyway, really admire this man. He's not a member of our church, but I feel like he's a good man. It was a pretty good interview. In fact, I'm indebted to my son Harper for sharing the entire interview with me in a link, or I would have missed it. This interview was quite interesting. Notable, for one, because Joe Rogan, I don't think, used the F word once. And I'm like, gosh, the man can control it. Why doesn't he control it more often? I mean, to be so sloppy with such a vulgar, crude, ugly word, that's really unfortunate. I know it happens all over. It's not just this one guy. But anyway, in this interview with Stephen Meyer, I've got to be grateful Joe Rogan decided not to use that word. And it was a very pleasant interview to watch. They were talking about the existence of God. Stephen Meyer's a believer. Joe Rogan was not. And this came up, and it often comes up when we're talking about belief in religion or religion in general or particularly Christianity. And so many people use this as an excuse for their agnosticism or atheism. I don't believe in God because otherwise he wouldn't let bad things happen in the world. He wouldn't let innocent people suffer. This is so common a complaint. Have we talked to our children about this? If we have a problem ourselves with this, I hope we are studying it out. Go back and listen to the second half of the Joseph of Egypt episode that I did on Follow Him. I actually did a version of it on my own podcast back then. Now I'm no longer duplicating. But back then I think I did an episode on both Follow Him and Choosing Glory on why bad things happen to good people. And I have a lot of information that you can share right there in that episode. And there are many other places we can go. The scriptures are full of understanding if we figure it out, but let's help each other. Some of the answers that people will offer that are not members of our church that don't have the whole plan of salvation available to them, will say things like, well, God created a perfect world, and then we messed it up in the fall, which sadly is such a misunderstanding of the purpose of life, the purpose of mortality. As I have said many times, 
I like to say that instead of we came to earth to get a body and to be tested, I like to say that we came to earth to get a body and that's the test. The test is, can you handle the flesh or is the flesh going to handle you? Because you're constantly seeking pleasure. And that desire for gratification, that desire to fulfill your appetites ends up getting in the way of your following a covenant path and obeying the commandments in a consistent, even a boringly consistent way. So that's the test. Here's a body that is full of appetites and has desires, appetites, and passions, and because we're in this mortal celestial sphere, is carnal, sensual, and devilish. And nevertheless, though the spirit may be willing and the flesh is weak, we don't have to stop there. We can strengthen our spirit. Through Christ, through the powers of heaven, we can become strong as we learn to harness the natural man. This is such an important thing for parents to teach their children. They need to understand why it matters that they're obedient, why they control their tempers. And at every age, we need to eliminate that short fuse that so many of us have. Brothers and sisters, anger is destructive. It's celestial. You can do lots of good works, but if you continue to yell at people or criticize people or be passive aggressive or manipulative, whatever, that is not okay with God. So let's work on these things. Let's harness our natural man. Let's teach the principle behind it. We have the plan of salvation. I told someone just the other day that that is my best therapeutic tool, is the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness and understanding the plan of salvation. It's my best tool. And I have used it with member and non-member alike. We can change the vocabulary if needed, but the principles answer the questions that people have in their lives and give us meaning and context and understanding of why bad things happen to good people. And you could say the reverse, why good things happen to bad people. Why God allows such injustice. We've talked about this many times. It's necessary in order for us to develop the spiritual muscle and the character and the capacity to be like Jesus Christ. Is there no other way? No, there is no other way. Remember, he is the father of mercies. He would not do this if there were another way. He would not allow such suffering to exist if there were another way whereby man could come to God but there must needs be opposition. This is Lehi, right? From 2 Nephi 2, his last big sharing of his testimony to his descendants before he dies. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness. That's for Jacob, right? He's addressing Jacob directly. Righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things... Meaning, if that were not the case, all things must needs be a compound in one, meaning they would all be the same. There would be no righteousness or wickedness. There would be no holiness nor misery or good or bad if there were no opposition. There'd be no test. We would all just be lumps of natural men clay in flesh around the planet. And nobody could qualify for the great gifts that God offers us. So if it were not for that thing, for opposition, for the choices that must be made because of that opposition, all things would be the same, a compound in one. Does that sound like anything? Craig Matson with that Quick Media podcast was talking about this the other day, and I really enjoyed it because he talked about how this is equity. 
This is a way of saying that if there's no difference between us, it's equity. That's what we hear all the time these days in our society, at least here in the United States and other places as well, that we need to be you know, focused on equity, which means what? That all things are a compound in one. There's no good or bad. There's no holiness or misery or wickedness or happiness. It's all the same. And everybody deserves the same outcome no matter what they do, no matter what they choose, because it's all the same. There's no hierarchy. And Brother Matson talks about that hierarchy a lot, which he makes good points about. So if you're interested, go and catch that quick media presentation. But I will say quickly that one of the things that he references that I often reference is that beautiful language in Abraham 3. And maybe you remember, let me actually read a little bit of that that talks about a hierarchy. Remember, you know, people are always trying to destroy hierarchies and they think of them as very evil. Maybe you've heard Jordan Peterson talk about how natural hierarchies are, how things always arrange themselves in a hierarchy. Even, I think he mentions lobsters, right? But it's not, I, I'm not going the evolution route he's going, but I am in agreement with what he says about how there is a natural hierarchy that emerges. You know, when you put raw milk from a cow into a bucket, the cream rises to the top. That's a hierarchy, brothers and sisters. And people are the same. Some people rise to the top because they want what God offers, because they want to expect good things from themselves and become capable of those good things at any rate. This is Abraham 3, verse 6. The Lord said unto me, Now, Abraham, these two facts exist. Behold, thine eyes see it as it given unto thee to know the times and the reckonings, etc. He goes on, verse 16, if two things exist and there be one above the other, that's a hierarchy, brothers and sisters, there shall be greater things above them. Therefore, Kolob is the greatest of all. Skipping a little bit, then he talks about the moon being higher than the earth and the sun. Being, anyway, all of that stuff. Then I'm going to go beyond to verse 19. This is one that I quote often. And the Lord said unto me, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. And remember, this is not about IQ. This is not about earthly learning or capacity. This is about our willingness to receive light, truth, and intelligence, because they're the same thing. Intelligence is light and truth. So if we have an open heart and a willing mind, we receive God's light, truth, intelligence. We act upon that light, truth, and intelligence, and we receive more. We talk about that all the time, don't we? If there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other, there shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. Words to remember always, brothers and sisters, he is smarter than we are. Anyway, I'm not going to go into as much detail as Brother Matson did, but it's a good video and it's kind of long and the first part of it, you know, you have to listen really closely, but he makes some good points. I love this point that this is what Lehi is talking about. If there is no opposition, then there would be no separating factor and everybody would be the same. That's equity. That was Satan's plan that not one soul should perish. We all have to make it back to Heavenly Father, whether we want to or not. And that completely flies in the face of agency. So opposition is always intricately associated with free will. Now, I'm not saying free agency. We know that there are consequences to agency. I'm saying free will and the gift of agency that our Heavenly Father has given us to make choices in the face of opposition. I do want to also quote from a book that somebody told me about many years ago, and I decided to read it. It was a fairly short book, quite 
of a quick and interesting read to me. I liked it. It was called Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, written by Eben, with a B, like boy, E-B-E-N, Alexander III, who is an MD, is a neurosurgeon, as I said, and an atheist. And he thought consciousness existed because of brain function, and when the brain stopped, consciousness ended. There was no spirit, there was no afterlife or pre-mortal life. And then he had some serious kind of meningitis, if I'm remembering the details correctly, that stopped his brain from functioning for about a week. And this particular disease or bacteria or whatever it was actually was usually fatal, but he managed to survive physically. And he came back. Some who survived become vegetables, but he actually came back and he had to go through some rehab and so on, but he was able to regain his facility, which is amazing. And it was pretty miraculous. And he at some point wrote this book because in that week's time that his brain had ceased to function as far as the monitors could tell, he knew he was somewhere and he talks about what he learned. (laughs) It's pretty, it's a pretty interesting book. He doesn't have the vocabulary of the church of Jesus Christ, but you can hear a lot of the principles that he saw. Now my hypothesis about that is that as we've said so many times before, the veil does not disappear with death. Death is not what finally pierces the veil completely. I mean, a portion of the veil would be pierced because even as an atheist, even Alexander realized that there was something after this life or something beyond this life in a spiritual realm. So he did gain more understanding of some things and the veil in those areas was parted for him to experience this near-death experience and come back and remember what he had learned. However... If death alone pierced the veil completely, then everybody who had a near-death experience would come back and join the church. (laughs) That's just the reality. If they could see everything, they would all come to Christ through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and in that covenant path, they would pursue their desires. However, even this man learned a lot, and I loved some of the things that he shared. So here it goes. I'm going to want to quote from that book. First, I should say, and I didn't find this particular quote, but I didn't look for it either. He at one place said that he could see that there were many universes and they were all connected. And I thought, yeah, check, 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 you know. (laughs) So he did see some pretty interesting things that certainly line up with our understanding and doctrine. Then this was the part that I thought was beautiful and very touching to me that is related to what we've been talking about today. Even on earth... Dr. Alexander says, there is much more good than evil, but earth is a place where evil is allowed to gain influence in a way that would be entirely impossible at higher levels of existence. You know, evil cannot exist in God's presence. That's what he's saying. Earth is a place where evil is allowed to gain influence in a way that would be entirely impossible at higher levels of existence. That evil could occasionally have the upper hand was known and allowed by the creator as a necessary consequence of giving the gift of free will to beings like us. There's that connection again. There has to be opposition. That's the message of Father Lehi and many other prophets throughout Scripture, that there has to be this contrast between good and evil, this choice or the availability of that choice because those two options exist. And that option is exercised through agency given to us by the Father. Going on. Small particles of evil 
were scattered throughout the universe. But the sum total of all that evil was as a grain of sand on a vast beach compared to the goodness, abundance, hope, and unconditional love in which the universe was literally awash. I have to read that again. I think it's so beautiful. Small particles of evil were scattered throughout the universe, but the sum total of all that evil was as a grain of sand on a vast beach compared to the goodness, abundance, hope, and unconditional love in which the universe was literally awash. That's beautiful language. Dr. Alexander concludes this section by saying, the very fabric of the alternate dimension is love and acceptance, and anything that does not have these qualities appears immediately and obviously out of place there. Think about that. The very fabric of the next world, the presence of God, or when the cares of this life are over, the very fabric of that alternate dimension is love and acceptance, and anything that does not have these qualities appears immediately and obviously out of place there. Now, I am going to qualify this word. He says acceptance. Well, of course, because the Lord the Lord God died for each one of us. Our Father in heaven created a world and a beautiful plan that would allow us to come back, and he loves and accepts us as his children always. But we know that there is a difference between that kind of embrace that is available to us by deity as opposed to the acceptance of sin. He just talked about that, right? Evil exists so that we can exercise our choice, so that we can exercise agency. And as we know, we choose every day the glory that we will inhabit in the next realm because of what we desire to do now under duress. Well, as promised, I need to end with this BYU Honor Code update. And I didn't even read the exact update, but you get a gist of what it is from this post that somebody did on Reddit at BYU's Reddit page. I don't know much about Reddit, so it was a daughter of mine. I think I mentioned Caitlin sent this to me, and I was glad to see it, but it's pretty tragic when you think about it. It's written by a BYU student, so here we go. So the church newsroom just published this today and sent an email out to all of us students notifying us of these changes. So this is a BYU student who's talking about the new changes to the honor code, the the update that was just recently announced. Continuing, it's been posted in other parts of this, you know, chain of thoughts. But anyway, he says, but I have to post it here too to add my own thoughts as an active member of the church and a current BYU student. Dress and grooming standards doubled down on the beard band, so no flexibility there. (laughs) I don't have strong feelings about that either way, but okay, the beard band continues. BYUI students can wear shorts now. And this parenthetical follows, which I would hardly call progress, due to the alignment of dress and grooming standards across all CES institutions. So he's saying they're just making it all uniform. There used to be some different stipulations on different campuses, but now it's all the same. Now everybody can wear shorts on campus. They should appropriately cover garments without modification of the garment. Just throwing that in. Now, honor code double down on LGBTQ students and same-sex romantic behavior. Remember, that was a big tempest in a teapot when at first... You know, the honor code made the point of saying that having same-sex feelings is not a sin, which our prophets have said from the beginning. The feelings 
of attraction are not a sin. They are, as we have said, due to a constellation of variables concerning our development and our life experiences that concern attraction. At any rate, when people saw that, okay, it's not a sin, some of the BYU students started holding hands with somebody of the same sex. And somebody, you know, they would kiss or whatever on campus. And so BYU came down and said, that's not what we meant, or words to that effect. And here he's saying they doubled down. (laughs) So no same-sex romantic behavior is acceptable on campus. Going on. Worst of all, and he puts that in bold print, in order to be endorsed to attend BYU, students must do more than simply follow honor code standards. Okay, well, but are they really more than honor code standards, or are they honor code standards that just were as yet maybe unspoken and implied instead of stipulated? He goes on and says, I don't know if it's a male or female, but they are now expected, and this part is also bolded, now expected to answer questions mirroring all of the temple recommend interview questions to the satisfaction of their local leaders in order to retain their academic standing at BYU. Well, isn't that the point, brothers and sisters? (laughs) I mean, you realize, right, that BYU is supported by our tithing funds. They also have an endowment and, you know, things that have come from contributions. And we have many, many generous people in the church who have endowed BYU with some good funds. But Tithing goes into the supporting of all these church schools. So, as has been said by some of our leaders when they visit BYU, every student there is virtually on scholarship with tithing funds because the costs of BYU are remarkably low for the quality of education available. So people consider, and secular magazines and so on, talk about BYU as like one of the best educational bargains in the world because there are some pretty high-ranking programs over there that have national recognition or even worldwide acknowledgement as good programs that provide good training for their students, and the tuition is so low. Why? Because it's subsidized by you and by me if we're tithe payers. So, (laughs) yes, the idea is to bring, like we were saying before, we want our young people to be equally yoked with believers, and guess what? These church campuses provide a wonderful opportunity for young people to come and meet others who believe and who desire to keep the standards that will lead them to a temple marriage that they participate in with complete worthiness. So it's kind of obvious when you think about it. And yet, look at this. He's indignant that now students are expected to answer questions mirroring all of the temple recommend interview questions. And then he says this sort of snidely to the satisfaction of their local leader. Well, come on, tell the truth. That's all we're asking here. Tell the truth to your bishop in order to retain their academic standing. Yeah, why should we use tithing funds so people who don't believe but are still members of the church can pretend to believe enough to go to BYU and get that scholarship that is provided by the tithe payers of the church and not really be there to be an example of a covenant person or to live in such a covenant path that it actually works the way we want it to. So that people make friends that they may not have been able to make if they lived in a place where there were few members or maybe even find someone to marry. Going on, I have friends here who struggle with Joseph Smith. Well, this is not a surprise to anybody who knows anything about BYU, but how sad. I have friends here who struggle with Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, Aspects of church history, I mean, nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters, sustaining of church leadership, 
paying tithing. There's an irony. I was reading this to Chris and Chris said, oh, that's great. So they want the tithing scholarship, but they don't want to pay or contribute to the tithing that is helping them get a good education at a bargain price. Being temple worthy. Yes, because that's the point of bringing these young people together and a variety of other things. So yeah, it doesn't stop there. They've got issues, axes to grind with all kinds of things in the church. This change, the letter says, has absolutely told these students that they don't belong here. Yes, I'm sorry if you're so offended by that. Not that sorry. But brothers and sisters, I'm sorry he doesn't understand or she doesn't understand. I am sorry about that because this is as plain as the nose on your face. You don't belong at BYU if you don't believe. It's a privilege to be at any of the church campuses in the world. It's a great privilege, subsidized by the faithful tithe offerings of the membership of the church on behalf of this younger generation and sometimes people who are returning to school at whatever stage of life, because that's great too, and the church does believe in education, but this is a privilege for believers. It's a privilege for people who are willing to take upon them the name of Christ and live a temple-worthy life, including a belief in God and Christ and the prophet of the restoration and our current prophet and all the other principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have a willingness to be in harmony with those things. So he continues, this change has absolutely told these students, oh, I just read that, right? That they don't belong here going on if you can't profess faith in these things, and prove it to your bishop, well, we have an honor system in the, those ways too, but if your bishop has reasons to doubt, he has a right to investigate that a little bit to see where you are. It is telling them that you either have a testimony of them or you're out. The church is a so-called place for sinners, but I guess BYU is not. Agreed. Agreed. The signs on our church buildings all say, visitors welcome. As we have said so many times, it's a hospital for the ill. It's not a museum for the saints that are all perfected and finished. So yes, church is a place for sinners, but not BYU. BYU is a privilege. The temple is not a place for sinners. That's why we are supposed to be worthy and remain worthy of our temple recommend, or we lose it, or give it voluntarily, or lose it for a season in order to help us get back into a place where we are worthy of that great privilege of going into the temple, or the great privilege that it is to participate at one of these church campuses. I mean, isn't that funny? I mean, I agree with what he's saying. He just doesn't get it. The church is a so-called place for sinners, but I guess BYU is not. Yes, that is correct. But then he continues and says, I am furious about this. Are you hearing the entitlement, brothers and sisters? There's so much entitlement here. I want to be able to do things my way, not God's way. And I still want all the privileges of faithful saints in the church. I am furious about this. I hope people understand just how much this will damage students. Not true. And professors alike, it will not damage those students and professors, it may give them the wake-up call they need. It's time to put up or shut up. If you believe, you are welcome. But if you are not willing to live a covenant life, you don't get covenant privileges. Everything in the gospel is conditional. How do we not know this? All the blessings that God offers us at higher levels are conditional. And he states those conditions in the very covenants when we make them as well as throughout his word in Scripture. And in the words of the prophets. Okay, finishing just a last line here. So 
What an absolute failure on behalf of the Church Educational Board for making these changes. Well, I cannot disagree with that. More vehemently, can you tell? They just effectively gave the boot to more than half of my friends at BYU. Well, there it is. <laughs> that would explain. Because apparently he has been unequally yoked with unbelievers. <laughs> That's assuming that he's a real believer. But even if he's a believer, he doesn't really get it. And we need to get it better than that. This is a great conversation to have with our children. This will be posted on Patreon it's on Reddit, so you can probably find it if you look. But anyway, I will put it in my podcast notes on Patreon if you're interested in finding it here. Last statement. Let's end on an upbeat note, right? We want to have that positive feeling. Elder Jeffrey Holland said, May I be bold enough to suggest that it is impossible for anyone who really knows God to doubt his willingness to receive us with open arms in a divine embrace if we will but come unto him. Now there is a path stipulated and covenants to be made on that path toward Christ. And if we do it his way, because he's smarter than we are, there is no doubt that God is willing to receive us with open arms. I testify of that love. Let us go forward, brothers and sisters, and choose glory and build Zion. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.